With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. good boys and girls two-footed podcast on thursday the 24th of march brought to you by eplindex.com and our presenting sponsor liberty shield liberty shield is a vpn provider a virtual privacy network allows you to go online change your location access things you're geo-blocked from while also keeping your data safe check out libertyshield.com and use the code router50 to get 50 percent off your Liberty Shield router. That's router 50 to get 50% off your Liberty Shield router. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check at homeofhopcroft.co.uk. And finally, do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you can find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 to get 10% off at checkout. Right, folks. So it's a quiet Thursday, not a whole lot going on. Uh, We want to touch today on Everton, Leeds, Leicester, Liverpool, and the two Manchester clubs and what they might need in the summer. We've got some listeners' questions to get through. And aside from that, there's a bit of gossip, a bit of news. But we're going to start with Manchester United. So there's been news in the last few days, obviously, that United have interviewed Eric Ten Hag. Now, I would contend that he has, in fact, interviewed them because he's negotiating from a position of power here. He's got a good job. He's at a big club. He could stay at Ajax for another year. There will still be top clubs looking at him in 12 months' time. There's a possibility the Manchester City job opens up. The Arsenal job could open up. The Spurs job could open up and he would be among the favourites for any of them, particularly Manchester City, to replace Guardiola, who he worked under at Bayern Munich. So when I hear that United are talking to Ten Hag, first things first, I think, well, at least they're getting the process started. Now, allegedly, they're going to also speak to Julian Lopetegui. They're going to try and speak to Maurizio Pochettino. Luis Enrique apparently is also on the shortlist. I don't believe he will leave the Spanish job before the World Cup. I think he'll want to see that through. So he's probably not going to be on the market till next summer. Now, United are being, I think, a little bit narrow-minded if that's the only group of managers they're actually looking at. But it is good for them to at least have an idea of who they want. The issue I would have is that they're all quite different managers. They all play different styles of football. And they're all used to operating in different ways. 
Now, Lupitegi and Pochettino would have more in common than either of them and Ten Hag. They've both worked in difficult circumstances financially. They've both got proven track records in top leagues. Ten Hag obviously does not. He's only managed in the Eredivisie and a Bayern Munich's reserve team. Lupetegui has won a European trophy. He won the Europa League. Pochettino got to a Champions League final. Ten Hag has gotten to a Champions League semi-final. There's very much a split camp between Ten Hag and Pochettino. Most people seem to be discounting Lupetegui. Of the three, he's the one I think would be the best fit. He's the one I think is the best coach of the 3 He's the one I think is better suited to coming in and rebuilding the club. He's also the one I think that's more comfortable working with players that are less than ideal for what he wants. I think he's more adaptable than the other two. But he seems to have been discounted. You have the Pochettino group who make strong cases for him. He did build a very good team at Tottenham Hotspur. But it's worth remembering that it's not like he took over a team that were in complete flux. It's not like he took over an absolute disaster. Tottenham had been a top six, top four club for a number of years before Pochettino got there. If we look at the seasons under Villas-Boas, Villas-Boas did better than people remember. He took over a club with the expectation he was going to get to manage Luka Modric and Gareth Bale. They had finished fourth under Harry Redknapp, they moved on to Vias Boas. They finished fifth that year. But if memory serves, yeah, they took 72 points. 72 points would have been enough for top four in a lot of years. But that season, the league was just unusually competitive. And he was a little bit unfortunate. He lost out by one point to an Arsenal team under Wenger who had just mastered the art of getting top four. The following season, Villas-Boas was fired just before Christmas and Tim Sherwood took over. They ended up finishing sixth. Sherwood will tell everybody that he had a 59% win rate and that's the best of anyone that's ever worked at Spurs. And then Pochettino takes over. In his first summer, they bring in Ben Davies, Michelle Vorm, Eric Dyer, DeAndre Yedlin, Federico Fazio, Benjamin Stambouli, who I'd forgotten had played for Spurs, and Deli Ali in the winter. The squad, if you look at it, already had some quality players. Hugo Lloris was there. Kyle Walker was there, England's first choice right back. Danny Rose was there. He would obviously go on to become England's first choice left back. Jan Vertonghen was there. They did have a big hole in the right side centre back position. Eunice Kabul was probably first choice. He's not very good. 
Uh, Vlad Churchich was there, and Fazio was the one that they brought in. None, none of them are ideal fits. Midfield-wise, there's a lot of talent there. Paulinho, a lot of people remember what a rough time he had in the Premier League, but he was a good player. They obviously added Dyer. Andros Townsend was there. Nasa Chadley was there. Christian Eriksen, Etienne Capoue, Ryan Mason, Nabil Bentaleb. Up front, he had a young Harry Kane, and to be to his credit, he was the one that gave Kane kind of the real kickstart. You had Eric Lamella, Roberto Soldado, and the corpse of Emmanuel Adebayor. So he takes that team over. They are a good team, and he does improve them. They finished fifth the first year, then they finished third in 15-16. And if we're all being honest, they should have won the league that year. They were the best team in the league that year. They'd added Toby Alderweireld, they'd added Youngman Son, they'd added Kieran Trippier for a bit of depth at right-back. Kevin Vimmer had arrived for depth at centre-back. And Spurs were a very good team, but they bottled it. They, they had an opportunity to win the title that season. They had a bad start. First four games, they failed to win any. Then they went in a really consistent run. And then from... Week 28 onwards, they lost three and drew four while winning only four of the last 11. And not only did they not win the league, they ended up finishing third behind Arsenal. In a two-horse race, they ended up finishing third behind Leicester on 81 points. So, you know, a fairly low return to win the league. And Arsenal. Spurs dropped points in 19 games that season. Leicester had dropped points in 15. Spurs had an opportunity to win the title and failed. The following season, 16-17, they finished second. Chelsea win the league, seven points clear. Chelsea were the best team in the league that season. But Spurs were very, very good. Only lost four times that season, only dropped points in 12 games, up their win total by seven games and finished with 86 points, so a 16-point jump, or 15-point jump from the previous season. They brought in Wanyama, they brought in Victor Janssen, he didn't really work. They wasted a lot of money on Musa Sissoko, that was a, a fairly poor move, but they did get better. They got to an FA Cup semi-final, they went out in the group stage of the Champions League and in the round of 32 of the Europa League, but they didn't have a squad of enough quality to compete on both fronts. 17-18 again, they finished third under Pochettino. They don't bring in anything that really changes the landscape for them. The signings they made probably all get marked down as a little bit disappointing. Davinson Sanchez, 42 million, didn't become the defender he was expected to. Juan Voigt has done really well at Villarreal, did less well at Spurs. Serge Aurier turned out to be a massive disappointment. Fernando Loriente, he turned out to be a bit of a disappointment. Lucas Moura obviously had his Champions League moment against Ajax, but all things considered probably has to be marked down as a disappointment. They dropped off to third that year, 77 points, 23 behind eventual winner City. You can't really criticise anyone for not winning the league that year when City took 100 points. But, you know, they could have finished above United and got another second place. 18-19 then was sort of the last season of Pochettino. They get to the Champions League final. They lose to Liverpool. They get to the EFL Cup semi-final and they finish fourth. 
And again, that's a very respectable season until you look at the fact that in their last 12 games, they won only three of them. They lost seven of their last 12 games. Their league form fell off a cliff from February onwards, mid-February onwards. They beat Leicester 3-1. They were third in the league. They weren't going to win it. They were too far behind City and Liverpool. But they looked like they'd be a solid third place. And then they just collapsed. Absolutely collapsed. Um, 13 defeats in the league that season is unacceptable. It's the next season then the Pochettino goes. They go out in the summer. They bring in Endombele. They bring in... Lo Celso, they bring in Jack Clark and Ryan Sessegnon, Stephen Bergvine, and this is sort of the big push. Oh, Bergvine actually might have come in. Yeah, Bergvine came in in the January uh, under Mourinho, but this was the big push that summer. Endombele, Lo Celso, this was them trying to bridge the gap again. And it just all went very badly in Pochettino leaves. But overall, you'd look at his time at Spurs and you'd say, Considering the club he managed, it is a success. They had the lowest wage bill of any of the big six. They spent far less than the likes of City and Chelsea and United over that time. They didn't attract the same calibre of players as Liverpool. But they outperformed Arsenal. They outperformed United in the league. You could argue they outperformed Liverpool in the league. Liverpool did have that brilliant second place finish. But over the course of the four years or so, you could argue they were outperforming Liverpool in the league. So Pochettino has done that. He has done very well in the Premier League. But he didn't win anything. And that's the knock on him, is he didn't win anything with that Spurs team. Not even a domestic cup. He's gone to PSG. And in his defence... They may be unmanageable. He's going to win a league title this season, regardless. But that's more to do with the level of the French league than anything else. You look at the last couple of managers of PSG, right? Thomas Tuchel was the last manager before Pochettino. Champions League final with them, won a league title, got sacked. Goes to Chelsea, wins the Champions League. Unai Emery won a couple, won a league title. May have been two league titles, actually. Um, but failed in Europe and got sacked. He's gone on to manage Arsenal and now Villarreal, where he won a Europa League. Before him, Laurent Blanc, again, failed in the Champions League, won league titles. Before them, before him, Carlo Ancelotti won a league title, got sacked, went to Real Madrid, won a Champions League. Three of their last four managers before Pochettino have left the club and gone on to win a major European honour within a couple of years. Carlo Ancelotti is not a bad manager. He didn't become a bad manager at PSG. I wouldn't be a big fan of Laurent Blanc as a manager, but, you know, such is life. Unai Emery's 
is what he is. He's a great cup manager, especially European competitions, especially the Europa League. But he has his limitations. He was a bad appointment, but he was kind of a hot ticket coming off his run at Sevilla. Tuchel's one of the best managers in the world, but he couldn't get it to work properly at Paris Saint-Germain. And one of the reasons is the squad is really badly put together. It's full of divas. It's full of players who are there purely because of the money, who don't have any real tie or any real thought for the club. And there's just too many big eagles. And what was great for Pochettino with Spurs is he had a group of players that didn't have those eagles. He had a lot of humble stars, Christian Eriksen, Jan Vertonghen, Toby Alderweireld, Moussa Dembele, Youngmin Son, Victor Wanyama. That's a very humble group of players, Hugo Lloris, another. Kane has a bit of an ego, but that's what you want in a number nine. Delhi had an ego, but again, you wanted that in a player like Delhi as a goal scorer. Delhi's ego seemed to drop off as his form dropped off, and the two would seem to be linked. But Pochettino didn't have experience of managing these big eagles. And he hasn't been able to control it. There's very few that can. Ancelotti's notoriously good at managing the eagles. Zidane, probably the best example recently, what he did at Real Madrid. They're the type of personalities that need to go to Real, not a Pochettino. Poch went there because he played there. He had an affinity for the club and he thought it was going to be something he'd enjoy. Little did he know what kind of a toxic atmosphere he was walking into. His time at PSG shouldn't be held against him. He should be judged on his time at Spurs. And for me, his time at Spurs is more impressive than what Ten Hag has done at Ajax. Ten Hag has been at Ajax five years now. Here's one for you. One of the reasons people are pushing so hard for Ten Hag is that he's a young, up-and-coming manager. Ten Hag is two years older than Pochettino. He's tagged as... The, the next Pep Guardiola, we've heard him call that. He's a year older than Pep Guardiola. Eric Ten Hag is 52. He's only two years younger than Jurgen Klopp. He's the same age as Antonio Conte. He's older than Diego Simeone. These managers that have dominated the landscape for a decade. He's only a couple of years younger than Max Allegri. Ten Hag isn't a young manager. He's a, an inexperienced manager. There is a difference. And it'll be quite a land for him to go from Ajax, where everything's really well run. He has the best support available. He has the best people in every area. They've got a great recruitment team. To United, where it's chaos. It's unqualified people at every level. The recruitment team are abysmal, and he won't get the support. Just take a look at the managers that have replaced Alex Ferguson before and after Manchester United. Look at David Moyes. Go and find a picture of David Moyes the day he was introduced. Then go and find one around the time he was sacked. Do the same for Van Hal. The same for Mourinho, 
the same for Ollie. And just take a look at what that kind of job does to a person's face. The stress and pressure of that job is incredible. Now, one of the arguments been made against Ten Hag is that you don't need Premier League experience. And I would agree, you don't. However, I saw this earlier on, and I wanted to address it. It was It's from an account called Man United Analytics. But he doesn't have Premier League experience. Sir Alex Ferguson, Jose Mourinho, Arsene Wenger, Pep Guardiola had no Premier League experience. Right, so let's dig into this then. Because Ferguson had been at Aberdeen. He'd won the Scottish title multiple times against the old firm. And he'd won a major European trophy. He had already established himself on the European scene as a winner. Not only that, he came to England and got six years where he was allowed to fail before he finally won the league title. That type of runway won't be given to a new manager. Jose Mourinho, he just won the European Cup. He was the hottest manager in world football at the time. He just won a European Cup. Pep Guardiola had managed at Barcelona, creating arguably the greatest club team ever, and Bayern Munich. So two of the four biggest clubs in the world. None of those are comparable to Eric Ten Hag. The other one he names is Arsene Wenger. Now, that's a fairer comparison. Wenger hadn't been at massive clubs. He'd been at Monaco. But he was at Monaco in an era where French football was very, very strong. Marseille won a European Cup while he was there. Wenger was also younger than Ten Hag, five years younger than Ten Hag when he took the Arsenal job. Wenger had managed in a stronger league and was younger. So there's not really a comparison there other than the fact that, you know, neither of them have managed one of the biggest clubs in one of the top leagues. Someone then replies to him, I was hoping someone would go through the Premier League winning managers and how many prior league experience they had. How many had prior league experience? It's not many at all. Claudio Ranieri, the only one I can think of. 90% of all Premier League managers, sorry, of all Premier League titles have been won with managers who had no Premier League experience when they were appointed. The three exceptions, Dog Leash, well, if we want to be technical about it, Dalglish had no Premier League experience. He'd managed in the old Division One. Mourinho and Ranieri. He says then, 
Alex Ferguson, Wenger, Mourinho, Ancelotti, Mancini, Pellegrini, Conte, Guardiola and Klopp all had no Premier League experience. Right, so again, we've been over Ferguson, we've been over Wenger, we've been over Mourinho. Carlo Ancelotti had won two European Cups, managed Juventus and AC Milan in Serie A at a time when that was the top league in the world. So you're not comparing him to Eric Ten Hag. Roberto Mancini had managed Inter Milan and won league titles in one of the top leagues in the world. Conte had managed Juventus and won three league titles. He'd managed the Italian national team. He'd managed at a much higher level than Ten Hag. Guardiola, we've been over. Klopp had been at Dortmund. He'd won Bundesliga as he'd gotten to a Champions League final. There's no comparison. Pellegrini is the only one comparable, but he'd managed in La Liga, which is a much higher level than the Eredivisie. He is the one. Him and Wenger are probably the two closest comps for Ten Hag. But at the same time, they've managed in better leagues than he has. They've had more pressure than he has. I don't think you can just look at previous managers who've won the league and say, oh, well, they didn't have Premier League experience. So you don't need that to win the title. You might not need Premier League experience, but you need either mega club experience or you know, top league experience. Nobody's coming in from, nobody's ever come in from a small league. Like, remember Christian Gross came over to manage Spurs, Calamity. He, at the time, was very highly regarded. Very highly regarded. Spurs getting him was seen as quite the coup. And I know people will say, well, Wenger came from Grampus 8 and whatever. He'd been in France for a decade managing. And he was younger as well. Ten Hag's 52 and he hasn't managed in a top league. Like, there's a reason... There's a reason the top managers are who they are. Klopp had established himself as one of the best managers in Europe, winning back-to-back Bundesligas in his early 40s. Pep had established himself before 40. Mourinho before 40. Ancelotti in his mid-40s. Ten Hag hasn't established himself. And he's 52. And the idea of, you know, he's a young and exciting manager. Again, he's older than Pochettino. He's older than Pep. He can't be the next Pep if he's older than him. I think he's a very good manager. I don't think he's the fit for United. 
I genuinely don't think it matters who they appoint us. As I've said before, I don't think it matters who they appoint unless the structure around them improves drastically from the top, the top down. Someone to run the football side of the club, a sporting director below them, heads of department all need to be changed, medical department, recruitment department, analytics department, all of them. Ten Hag is used to working in a very calm environment. He's not going to get that at United. Pochettino at least is used to working in a bit of a chaotic one. It hasn't gone brilliantly for him, admittedly, but he's at least used to that. But the knock on Pochettino, he didn't win anything. Ten Hag's won a couple of Eric Divisies. Like, Frank de Boer won four Eric Divisies. Philippe Koku won three of them. It's not a precursor for great success. And by the way, no guarantee Ajax win the Eredivisie this year. None at all. We'll move on. We'll move on. I just think United fans need to calm their expectations and stop making silly arguments for Ten Hag. Take a step back and look at the resume side by side. There's no question Pochettino is the better qualified candidate. There's no question about that. Yes, Ten Hag might play a better brand of football. You don't have the players to play his brand of football at all. Not even a little bit. Right. This summer, Everton Football Club, well, could be in the championship, but we're going to act as if they survive and we're going to go from you know what they have to where the glaring needs are in their squad. Now, the first thing they would need is a new manager because they're currently employing a PE teacher, but we'll forget that and move on. They've got Jordan Pickford. I'm not a fan, but I imagine he will stay there. I saw some really good analysis on him, actually, as a slight aside, by Stephen Warnock, and I was a bit surprised that you know, Stephen Warnock, who's not normally known for good analysis. He was talking about how animated and annoyed Pickford get anytime anyone has a shot on his goal. And it got me thinking, does it affect his, con his, his concentration? Is it a thing that he gets himself so worked up about a chance that his defence has allowed that he then continues to focus on it after the fact, because we see him regularly make a good save and then give up a soft goal within two, three minutes. And I do wonder if a little bit of that temper and that hot-headed nature is affecting his ability to correctly do his job. 
that's just a thought. Uh, Jordan Pickford, yeah, that's fine. He's your starting goalkeeper. You need a better backup goalkeeper than Asmir Begovic, who's awful. And Andy Lonergan is no more than a training ground goalkeeper. So you need a backup goalkeeper. Uh, you've got your right back sorted because in January you brought in Nathan Patterson. You've also got Seamus Coleman. I assume John Joe Kenny moves on, but if not, then that's three right backs. That's okay. At left back, I think you've got a need. So I think they should be playing a back three, especially under Frank, who's not good defensively. But if he sets them up in a back three, he can get away with a bit more. So if Patterson and Coleman are your right wing backs, you need a starting left wing back and you need to bring back Niels and Kunku as the backup. So starting left wing back would be the first thing to buy. In the middle of the defence, you go Godfrey, you go Yerry Mina, and you go Michaelenko. In reserve to that, they have Mason Holgate, Michael Keane, and Jared Branthwaite. Wouldn't be a big fan of Michael Keane, but he's there. He's serviceable enough. That's okay. Midfield two, you've got Takura, you've got Alan. It lacks guile and culture, but it is what it is. You've got the possibility to bring back Gabaman at the end of the at the end of his current loan. So he can be one backup. And you've also got Andre Gomes. I'm not a fan, but they pay him a lot of money. So there he is. Um Deli Ali is a 10. And then Alex Awobi is a backup to him. I think that's actually okay. Your front two are fine. Calvert Loon and Richarlison. You've got Damari Gray, who can be a depth option. He could also play the 10 position. You do need a backup number nine. You can't roll forward with Solomon Rondon again next season. So a backup number nine. Glaring squad needs. Starting left wing back. Backup number nine. Other needs, a lot of other things. You'd ideally like to upgrade on some of those pieces. You'd ideally like to upgrade on Alan. I would be looking for a starting midfielder. And I'd be looking to move Alan on, if possible. I think he'd be open to leaving. So if you can do that, absolutely do that. But the squad is not as terrible as how they've performed this season. We should keep that in mind. They do have a good backup number nine that they could have kept, but instead they loaned them to Juventus for two years. Now, maybe, because Juve don't seem all that keen on keeping them, maybe they can work out a deal to get him back. But whether he'd want to be there or not, I don't know. But backup keeper, starting left wing back, backup number nine, and we'll go with a starting midfielder as well and move Alan on and get someone in that actually complements Dekure a bit better. Uh, Leeds United. I've said before, the issue I have with Leeds, there is a decent starting 11, but not an entirely Premier League level starting 11, and everything else is championship or squad players. Goalkeeping situation, you've got Melier, you've got Clausen. Ideally, you'd like to have an experienced goalkeeper there, even just as a mentor. So I'd be looking to bring in, even as a third-choice keeper, someone with a bit more experience, someone who's been around, seen what it takes to play at a top club, can help the coaching staff develop those two highly promising young players and get them to the next level. You definitely need a starting right-back. Luke Ayling's one of the worst right-backs in the division. So he's a backup and nothing more. At left-back, you've got Junior Firpo. 
Uh, I suppose you could mark Stuart Dallas down as the backup there. He has played there a fair bit, so that's fine. So in the middle of the defence, you've got Lorente, you've got Struyek, you've got Robin Cock, you've got Liam Cooper. You need another starter. Now, I, I like Leo Hjell, the youngster, but he's, he's a kid. I like Struyek, but he's a little bit too inconsistent for my liking. I'd like a starter to go next to Diego Lorente. So starting centre-back, into midfield, you've got Calvin Phillips, you've got to find somebody that can play that role if he's not there. Nobody you'll find will be anywhere near as good as him, but just get somebody that can do a decent impression of him. Jesse Marsh is probably going to run with the box midfield next season. So in terms of partner for him, I think they've got to hit the market as well and find someone to go with Calvin Phillips. If you keep Rafinha, then you get him and you get Jack Harrison as the kind of two number 10s who, fl- who go wide without the ball. And that's ideal for both of them. Up front, you've got Bamford. You've got Dan James, who's played a lot up front. He's not an up front. He's not a striker, though. He's a winger. The backups to Harrison and, and Rafinha should be James and Rodrigo. You've got to find another striker. You've got to find another starting caliber forward. And you've got to find a backup number nine for, for Bamford. You've got to find, because Joe Gellhart can be one of your options off the bench, but you've got to find someone a bit older, a bit more experienced. Someone that's a proven goal scorer, even if it's a proven championship level goal scorer. So they need third choice keeper, starting right back, starting centre back, starting midfielder, starting striker, backup striker, and a backup midfielder. They need seven players. That's the most so far. But I mean, look at look at how they've been this year. And go through the squad. Melier, talented but very young. Ailing Championship, Fairpo, frustrating but good enough. Four shot Championship, Cock, injury prone but good enough. Cooper Championship, Bamford quality, Rafinha quality, Roberts frustrating. Carl Matchett's a big fan for some reason. Classen big talent but very young. Lorente quality, Stuart Dallas Championship, Rodrigo very frustrating but has talent. Dan James I just don't know. Struyek, young but promising. Harrison, quality. Phillips, brilliant. Bate, kid. Gelhart, kid. Hjeld, kid. Cresswell, kid. Somerville, kid. Uh, McKinstry, kid. Greenwood, kid. Matthias Glish, I forgot him going through the squad. Uh, decent squad player, but largely a championship caliber player. Liam McCarran, kid. Jamie Shackleton, kid. And Jack Jenkins, kid. Even the players they have out on loan don't help in this regard because, again, most of them are kids, except for Kiko Casilla, who's awful. Helder, Helder Costa, who's not good enough for the Premier League anymore. Uh, Ian Poveda is actually a player I do like. I'm surprised he's out on loan. 22 years of age. On loan at Blackburn. Doesn't seem to be... I wonder why he was loaned. 
He could have helped this season. But they need a lot. That's seven players that they need. Let's move to Leicester City then. So, I would say they need to sign a young goalkeeper that they can develop into their first-choice starter. You've got Kasper Schmeichel, who's a good keeper, but he is now 35-36. You've got Danny Ward, who's a good backup, but not a starter in the Premier League. And right back, you've got a great situation with James Justin and Ricardo Pereira. At left back, I'm not a big fan of Castanier, but you've got Castanier and Luke Thomas and Ryan Bertrand. That's enough to get you through a season. So they're fine at fullback. At centre-back, they've got Fafana. They've got Sionchu. They've got Johnny Evans. They need to get rid of uh, Yannick Vestergaard. And they need to buy... I would say they need to buy two centre-backs. Two good backup centre-backs and have Evans as your fifth centre-back. Now, it can be a case where he's actually your third centre-back and the other two are developing. But Evans... I think is going to have injuries now the rest of the way with his career. He's also 35, 36. I think two backup centre-backs are needed. I wouldn't be against bringing in a starter and moving Sayonchu to a backup role, given how he's regressed. That might be the best course of action. So maybe a starting centre-back and a backup centre-back. Um, in midfield, they've got Ndidi, who's brilliant. They've got Samari as a backup to him. They've got Yuri Telemans. Now, they may lose Yuri Telemans, but I am going to work under the assumption that he stays just for the purpose of this. I'd be bringing back Dennis Pryat as a backup to him. And then I've got Hamza Chowdhury and Nampali's Mendy. I don't need to touch my central midfield. Don't need to touch it. I've got James Madison and Keenan, uh, Kiernan Dewsbury Hall for that other more kind of creative advanced midfield role. So again, I'm fine there. I don't need to touch my midfield. I can go with Harvey Barnes on, on one wing. And I could say Aosie Perez as the backup to him. Through the middle, I've got Ian Acho, I've got Vardy, and I've got Daka. I don't need that. They need one to start on the other side of the front three. Now, even if they keep Luckman, I'd still be looking to bring one in. Because I think it might be time to move uh, Mark Albrighton on, or, or at least just have him as more of a squad player, less someone you're relying on. So they don't need a whole lot. Young goalkeeper to develop, starting centre-back, depth centre-back, and two in attack. Yeah, I would say two in attack. I would say keep Luckman and add one more. And I think then they're really strong across the board. Now, obviously, a lot depends on Telemans. He could go, then you do have to replace him. But they'll still be in a strong situation. They do need to move on from Schmeichel, Vardy and Evans in the next year or two. But it doesn't have to happen this summer. I would absolutely be looking to move on Vestigard at the first possible opportunity because he is terrible. But the rest of the squad is very, very strong. Like, there's great options there. Daniel Amarty, probably move him on as well. I think he's had a contract, actually. But 
starting centre back is the and, and a starting right sided forward is the are the only starting needs. The rest you can be smart about. You could try and extend Luckman's loan for a year. You could maybe get a centre back in on loan. Maybe Arsenal would be willing to loan you William Saliba. I said before, if I was Leicester and Arsenal are sniffing around Telemans, I'd be asking for Saliba plus, plus cash. Um, so it's I don't think it, it's going to cost them a whole lot of money. They've also got a question mark over the manager. That needs to be addressed this summer too. Uh, what's going to happen with Brendan? Because he's had a dreadful season. He himself has had a dreadful season. And his signings, Vestigard and Ryan Bertrand, and you know they're his signings, have not worked out at all. And the fact that Lee Conjurton is up and left makes me wonder if Brendan might be next. Right, let's move on then. Uh, Liverpool up next. Not a whole lot needed, but there are still holes in the squad. So Allison in goal, perfect. You've got Cuevin Kelleher as a backup. You've got Pitaluga. You've got Adrian. You don't need to touch your goalkeeping situation. Keep what you have and run with that next season. You've got Trent at right back. One of your biggest needs is a backup to him. Someone that can allow him to play maybe even six or seven games less a season. Someone that will play all the Cups, handful of Premier League games, and the odd dead rubber match in the Champions League. A left, a, a right-sided Costa Simicus. You've got Robertson and Simicus at left-back. It's arguably the best left-back situation in the league, so they're absolutely sorted there. Left-side centre-back, you've got Van Dijk, you've got Gomez, that's perfect. You've got Matip and Kanate on the opposite side, that's perfect. Now, I'm greedy, so I would like a fifth centre-back, but it's not a necessity, it's not something they need, so they don't need to worry about it. If Gomez leaves, they'll need to replace him, but that'll be down to him. He will make the decision. Liverpool won't look to sell him because why would you? He's the best fourth centre-back on the planet. He's England's best centre-back. So why would you look to sell him? But if he decides he'd like to move on, I think they will facilitate that. So they they could need a centre-back. But at the moment, the only need they have between goalkeeper and the defence is a backup right-back. Into midfield, you've got Fabinho as the holding midfielder. Ideal. Ideally, you'd like someone who could be a quality backup to him, but buying purely a defensive midfielder is a little bit redundant. Henderson does a job there. It's not necessarily a good job there, but against certain teams, he's absolutely fine. They do need a starting midfielder to go with Fabinho and whoever plays on the left. So they need a starting right-sided midfielder. And maybe if they do sign Chuameni, he can fill in. Now, they'd probably move Thiago and Keita across to the right and play Chuameni on the left, but he can also fill in for Fabinho. So that, that could solve those two issues. That's the only thing they need in midfield, is, is one player who can be a starting six, sorry, a starting eight and a backup six. Chuameni, Calvin Phillips would fill, would fill that mould as well. Um... Declan Rice would be far too expensive, but he could fill that role. In attack, if we assume that the front three that has been all stay, then they've got Firmino and Jota through the middle, 
Mane can also play there. They've got Mane and Diaz on the left. Jota can also play there. They could do with some better cover for Salah, but Taki Minamino is not a bad player. So you could just have him as the sixth forward with Kate Gordon. So really for Liverpool, unless Mane leaves, which I think is, is highly possible, they only need to buy a starting midfielder and a backup right back. And that's it. That's all they need. Uh, let's move to Manchester and we'll start with City. Again, they don't need a lot because it's a very strong squad. So they've got Ederson, they've got Zach Steffen, they've got Scott Carson. Goalkeeper, sorted. They've got Kyle Walker at right back. The nominal backup right back is Jao Canseo. The problem is he's also the starting left back. And he can't be in both places at once. I think he's a better left back than he is right back. So I would look to bring in a backup right back. Now, they own a very good one called Pedro Porro. He's been on loan at Sporting Lisbon for a couple of years. I, I just bring him back. I think that's the smartest move. Um, Ruben Diaz and John Stones for right side centre back. Americ Laporte and Nathan Aki for left side centre back. That's perfect. You've got De Bruyne, Gundogan, and Bernardo Silva. Sorry, I, I missed. Sinchenko is the backup left back. So I, I think he's fine there. He is nominally more of a midfielder, though. So you could look to bring in a backup left back as well. So go backup right back, backup left back. Shift Sinchenko back into his more natural position as an eight and have him say as a backup to Gundogan. In the left side of eight role, De Bruyne and Bernardo Silva in the right side of role. Rodri in the holding midfield position. They probably do need a backup for him if Fernandinho moves on, which has been rumoured for a couple of years, but may happen this year. So maybe looking to bring in one there as well. And then up front, um, Mares. And Sterling for the right, or Mares and Gabby Jesus for the right, I suppose. Foden through the middle, Sterling and Grealish off the left. I would say look to bring in one in attack. It doesn't really matter where they play because most of City's attackers can play across the line. Other than Mares and Grealish, the other three all can. So one more versatile attacker. Doesn't have to be starter quality, but I do think they could upgrade perhaps on Riyad Mahrez. And if they were to bring in an upgrade on Mahrez and have that person, then Mahrez, Foden and Jesus, Sterling and Grealish, then that's perfect. So maybe a starting attacker, a backup holding midfielder and two backup fullbacks. And that's probably City done. That's probably their squad close to perfect. Now, they also have... Cole Palmer to consider, who's I think is very, very special. So what they could do is they could leave Zinchenko at left back and play Cole Palmer as one of the eights as in that rotation. And maybe that's the best use of, of resources. So then it's just a backup holding midfielder to replace Fernandinho, a backup right back for, for Walker. But again, 
Pedro Porro is on, on your books, maybe just consider using him. And that's starting number nine. And that's probably it. Starting nine, backup holding midfielder, and you just start using the players you already own. Because, you know, why wouldn't you do that? Um, City are in great shape. Of course they are. And then finally, Manchester United. De Gea isn't the ideal goalkeeper for Ten Hag. He He's not a bad fit for Pochettino, though. And they've got Dean Henderson. And they've got Tom Heaton. I think goalkeeper, they're fine for this summer. Goalkeeper's fine for this summer. I would look to bring in a starting right back. I think Wan-Bissaka needs to be sent out on loan or sold or something, but he's not a Manchester United caliber player. Um, Delo is a fine backup. You've got Shaw and Tellers at left back, so you're set. At centre-back, you've got Varane, you've got Lindelof, you've got Maguire, you've got Bailly, you've got Phil Jones. So numbers-wise, you're absolutely fine. And if Eric Bailly could stay fit, him and Varane could be a hell of a partnership with Lindelof as the third. The problem then is Maguire is your fourth centre-back. He is your club captain. He cost $80 million. So I don't know. I don't think they'll buy a centre-back this summer. I don't think they'll entertain the idea. I think they look at Varane and Maguire and say, that's what we're going with. Show one side, and I think a starting right back would be the need there in defence. Um, in midfield, they need a bit of everything. They need two starting midfielders. They need two starting midfielders. They're going to lose Pogba, which is no great loss. And there's rumours now that he's in talks with Newcastle over move there. That would be utterly foolish. But he is the biggest flop in Premier League history. As of right now, Paul Pogba is the biggest flop in Premier League history. They need two starting midfielders, and then they've got McTominay and Fred for a bit of depth there. They've got Bruno as a 10. They've got Donny van de Beek and Juan Mata for depth there. You get Sancho on one side. And I would say Rashford can be the backup to him. Now, the other side would have been Greenwood, but obviously, who knows what happens with him. You do have Ahmad Diallo. You do have Anthony Alanga. So I'm not necessarily sure I'd look to rush to buy someone. You can play Rashford there. You can play Sancho there. I don't think I'd buy a wide forward. I would look for a number nine. And then have Martial, I'd, I'd just force him to stay. Martial is the backup. I'd get rid of Cristiano, I'd get rid of Cavani. But I think a starting striker is definitely needed. Two starting midfielders and a starting right back. So four starters. Four starters at a minimum. And that's still not ideal because you've still got De Gea in goal and Maguire at centre-back. Ideally for them to become a real contender, they need six new starters. But you're not going to do all of that in one summer. I would say the four are glaring, though. Now, if Cristiano sticks around another year, maybe they don't buy a striker. Maybe they push that till next summer, 2023. But two midfielders is an absolute must. You've got to get two new midfielders in there. 
unless you want to go 4-3-3, then you could start Fred. You could say Bruno, new holding midfielder, and Fred. But you'd still need a backup midfielder. So you still need two midfielders regardless. Um, United have a lot of work to do. A lot of work to do. And obviously the biggest decision is going to be who the manager is. So that is that. We'll leave that there. And tomorrow we will finish off the rest of the Premier League clubs and work our way through uh, what we have left, which I believe starts with Newcastle United and is Norwich, Southampton, Tottenham, Watford, West Ham and Wolves. Uh, There'll be some focus on centre-back for Watford, I imagine. Right, we'll take a break. When we come back, we've got some listeners' questions and we've got a little bit of news. See you in a sec. Right, welcome back. So it is Thursday, which means it's listeners' questions day. So we'll start with this one from Theo Saki. Who's who do you think will end up with a better coaching tree, Klopp or Pep? And who has a better coaching three at uh, three now, Wenger or Sir Alex Ferguson? So when you look at Pep, Louis Enrique was Barca B manager when he was at Barcelona. And then, obviously, Ten Hag was Bayern Munich reserve manager when he was at Bayern. Arteta was his assistant at City. And he obviously managed Xavi. Now, I I wouldn't count Xavi as part of Pep's coaching tree because he didn't actually work under him as a coach. He did play under him for a number of years, so you probably do have to take that into consideration. For Kloppo, Hannes Wolf worked under him. David Wagner worked under him. Uh, Gerard worked in the academy under him. Neil Critchley worked in the academy under him. Michael Beale worked in the academy under him. And, of course... His current assistant is Pep and Linders. I think Pep will have the better coaching tree, in large part because of the clubs he's managed. Like, there's other Barcelona players who worked under Pep, like Sergio Busquets, who I think could become a very good manager. Iniesta could become a very good manager. They have the... uh, the right men- mentality and mindset and personality for it. Thiago would count for both. I think he's probably obviously more influenced by Pep having worked under him at both Barcelona and Bayern. I think the answer to that is Pep. In terms of Wenger versus Ferguson, I mean, Wenger had Arteta as a player. He had Vieira as a player. Uh, he had Tony Adams, who wasn't a good manager. Ferguson, have any of his become good managers? Giggs did a decent job with the Welsh team until personal issues took over. Uh, Ollie's not a good manager. Ince is not a good manager. Hughes is not a good manager. Keane did really well at Sunderland, not well at Ipswich. 
Uh, Ince, did I say Ince? Ince is not a good manager. Bruce is not a good manager. Steve McLaren worked under him as an assistant. He's not particularly good either. He did well with Twente, but nowhere else. Carlos Kirosh wasn't a good manager and isn't a good manager. Uh, Rene Muhlenstein isn't a good manager. Ferguson has the widest ranging, but I don't think any of them are any good. I really don't. I'm not sure any of them are any good at all. Now, maybe I'm missing somebody obvious, but I don't think I am. Gary Neville wasn't a good manager. Phil Neville's not a good manager. I know Rio thinks he'd be an amazing sporting director, but he wouldn't. Rooney might turn out to be the best manager of all the players that worked under Ferguson. And all of his assistants that went on to become managers failed. Brian Kidd, Carlos Quiros, René Muhlenstein, Mike Phelan, and Steve McLaren. So I think it's Wenger. Even though Wenger's is much smaller, I think Vieira alone is better. Now, again, Vieira didn't do great at Nice, so you know we'll wait and see how he continues to do at Palace. Arteta obviously shows bits of promise, but he's far more... He's far more influenced by Guardiola than he is by Wenger. At the minute, it's Ferguson just because of body of work and the amount of them. But I think Vieira might end up being the best manager, the best manager who played under either of them. None of Wenger's assistants, like Pat Rice was assistant for a long, long time. Steve Bold was then his assistant. Rice never became a manager. Steve Bold won't become a manager. I think Vieira ends up being the best manager who's played under either of them. Ferguson's is just very like wide-ranging. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's probably Ferguson by, by sheer volume. I think it will be Guardiola over Klopp. Um, but I mean, look, Klopp's influence extends to people who didn't work under him, as does Pep's. And I think the likes of Thomas Tuchel would be very quick to credit Jurgen Klopp, as well as the likes of Ralph Hasenhutl, Roger Schmidt. They'd be very quick to credit Klopp with his influence on them. Likewise, a lot of managers would credit Pep with his influence on them. So I would say, I'd also put Hansi Flick in the ones influenced by Klopp, but regardless, I would say Pep's will end up superior. Um, just because I think, I think he managed more players who will become high-level coaches than Klopp. If I look at this current Liverpool team, Van Dijk, I think, could become a manager. Thiago, I think, probably will become a manager. A lot of people say Milner. If he does, I think he'll just be gambling gravy, to be honest. Henderson's not intelligent enough to become a manager. Um, Thiago and, and Virgil, probably the two. And again, Thiago far more influenced by, by Pep than by Klopp. Um, right, the rest of the questions we have here. Um, right, AMK2889. Would Fabregas have past Giggs' assist tally if he'd stayed at Arsenal? 
Also, would he have stayed at Arsenal the whole time until leaving from Monaco? Sesk ended on 111, Giggs on 162, Giggs played 282 more games. Yes, yes. Sesk would have beaten uh, Ryan Giggs' record. I, I don't even think it would have ended up being particularly close, to be totally honest. Like, if we look at Sesk, he's at Arsenal from 03 to 2011. And then he goes to Barcelona. And so obviously what he does there doesn't count towards his Premier League assist tallies. There's three seasons lost, basically. Then he joins Chelsea and he has four seasons there before going to Monaco. I think if he'd stayed at Arsenal, he would have not just beaten the, the record. I think he would have smashed it. And I actually think he would have stayed at Arsenal longer before going off to somewhere like Monaco. He might have stayed until he was 35, 36. Uh, I think he made a mistake joining... That's harsh to say. I don't think he can really say joining Barcelona is a mistake uh, when you went on to, you know, to play went back to play for your boyhood club. But at the same time... I, I think if he'd stayed at Arsenal, they'd be building a statue of him. Would he have stayed at Arsenal the whole time? That's the thing that's hard to know. Like, Chelsea were always going to come knocking at some point. I think United probably would have as well. So at some point, his head may well have been turned. But I think if he doesn't leave the Premier League for Barca, he catches gigs. And I think he would probably have stayed on a bit longer. I think he would have beaten the record comfortably enough. To be honest, I do. I think he would have beaten it comfortably enough. Sesk was... The way he he saw the game was just so special. Such a talented player. Still outstanding. Hard to believe he's now 34. Uh, He'll be 35 in May. He's having a fairly injury-plagued time of things at at Monaco. But um, he's, he's so much fun to watch. So much fun to watch. In his prime, there was just... There was no better playmaker in the division than Sesk in his prime. And it's just a shame he lost those three, or we we as a, as a league lost him for those three years. Like, I, I get that Barca wanted to bring him back. I get that their plan was, you know, we have ja- Xavi and Iniesta will be transitioning to the next stage and we want Sesk to come back in along with Thiago, who's coming, who's come through the academy. And they're like the next stage of, of our midfield. In the end, Sesk just didn't light the world on fire there. Ended up playing out of position a lot. Still had, you know, still had good seasons, still won a league title, but you know, wasn't the success he wanted, and obviously Thiago left to go to uh, to Bayern Munich. Um, Isaac Gilding, why aren't Roma better? Why haven't they done better historically? I've been wondering for a while. I understand that the Northern Giants were so dominant in Italy on from the nineties, from the eighties till the two thousands. It must have been hard to compete, but they won the league around the millennium with Capello. 
Uh, what stopped them kicking on? Roma is Roma is incredible and can offer anything. Turin and Milan can as a place to live. I believe they're the biggest club in Italy after AC, Juve, AC Milan, and Inter. Certainly the bigger of the two Rome-based sides. I definitely believe that. I, I definitely think they are. I think they're number four. You you could argue Napoli though. Like you could argue Napoli are are as big, if not bigger, but still they're in the top five regardless. But I mean, if we look at Napoli, they've won two league titles, you know, and, and not won one since Maradona was there 30 years ago. Um genuinely, the owners of Juventus, Inter, and AC Milan. We're just willing to spend more money. That's what it comes down to. And it wasn't just them. Fiorentina spent more money. Napoli spent more money. Lazio spent more money. Um, Parma spent more money. You know, when we look at that Roma team that won the title, they brought in Capello. And when you bring in Capello, it's a win-now move. So you have to back and you have to commit the spending money. And unfortunately for them, they did it once, won the title, and then didn't really follow up on it. And then he obviously left and went to to Juventus because he got frustrated, but also because Juventus were one of the bigger clubs. Historically, I don't know is is the honest answer. It has always been curious to me as to why Roma haven't been more successful what it is about that club that just hasn't translated to the type of success you would expect like if we consider the premier league your five biggest clubs historically let's take out the let's take out the recently big clubs like aston villa are probably the fifth biggest club in england when you take out city and you take out Chelsea, who weren't considered big clubs until they got influxes of money. You had Liverpool, United, and Arsenal on a plane onto their own. And then I would say Everton, Villa, and Spurs were the next three. So take any of them. I'd say Spurs would have been six. I think I genuinely think Everton would have been considered fourth. So Villa, like Villa have won. A European Cup, for starters. Villa have won, I believe, seven. Is it seven league titles? Hang on. Now, obviously, a lot of them came many years ago. Yeah, seven league titles, seven FA Cups, five EFL Cups, uh, and a European Cup. So, like, there's no way Villa are a bigger club than Roma. They're certainly not a more appealing club than Roma. But yet, if we look at Roma, they've won three league titles. They won one in the 40s, one in the 80s, and then one in the 2000s. And that one in the 2000s nearly bankrupt them. They they nearly went out of business trying to win that title. And the big spur for them to do that had been Lazio winning a title. They won in the 80s, and then Juventus overtook them, and then Milan overtook them. And then through the 90s, obviously, it was Juventus, it was Milan, and we saw Inter spend repeatedly trying to catch up. We saw Fiorentina and Napoli and Parma spending big money. 
Then towards the end of the decade, Lazio start to really plough money in. And Roma just kind of got left behind. Like they just sort of got left behind. And oftentimes they were scrambling about buying second-class players, you know, trying to cheat the system, trying to take shortcuts. They appointed bad managers. They, they just signed a lot of dross. They signed some really good players, but a lot of dross. And, they, yeah, they just, they just never got things right. Like, they continuously messed up with managerial appointments. And you look at Roma from Sven-Goran Eriksson left in 86. Capello arrived in 99. Okay, so that's 13 years. Sormani, Liedholm, Spinozzi, Radici, Bianchi, Boscoff, Mazzoni, Bianchi again. as a different Bianchi. Uh, lead home again, that is the same one. Uh, back for a third time in charge. Yeah, third time in charge. Um, Sella and Zeman. Two, four, six, eight, ten. Eleven managers in 13 years. No stability. You look at the history of the club, and it's it's been like that from 1927. Their managers go two years, one year, two years, one year, one year, four years. Uh, Barbacino, four years, 1934 to 1938. One year, three year, one year, two year. Two years, one year, one year, one year. Less than a season, less than a season. A year, two years, a year, two years, a year, a year, a year, a year. Carries on all the way through. The 60s, uh, nobody manages more than two seasons. Uh, Niels Ledholm manages three seasons in the 70s. We're back to a year, a year. Ledholm comes back again for four years. So that's two managers in what is at this point a, a near 60-year history who've managed four years. Ericsson is two years. And then it's all a year and two years up until Capello. And Capello manages five years. The club are over 70 years old, and he's the first manager to last five years. And since him, Spalletti had four. And Rudy Garcia had three, and the rest has been a year and two years. So they've just never had a settled situation with the manager. Like, you've got a handful of managers that managed more than two years. And only one that managed five years. A couple of fours, a few threes, mostly twos, and to be fair, mostly ones. They've just had so much upheaval in terms of managers. Like, they're not helped when Alfred Schaefer wins the league title and then leaves that summer. You know, that, that doesn't help at all. Uh, lead home may well have been sacked in 83, but he won the league title. He, he left a year later. 
it, it's just you can't really do anything when you're that chaotic. And when Franco Sensi was manager, which is the time of Capello, he made a lot of bad decisions until he got Capello. And then he almost run, ran them into the ground. And then his daughter took over and she had to try and fix the mess that he left behind. The only reason he left it behind is because he died. Otherwise, he would have continued to run them in the same chaotic fashion. And then they got bought by part of the Fenway Sports Group um, cabal, cartel, whatever you want to call them. Um, and they've obviously they've obviously changed ownership again since. But yeah, it, it, it does just come down to chaos, really. Far too much chaos. Changing presidents every three, four years. And then the Sensi family take over and he spends to oblivion. Like they weren't making enough money. They've never marketed themselves well enough. So there's they don't bring in enough money as part of it. They don't market themselves well enough. They don't do enough to connect themselves to their fan base. They haven't done enough to expand their fan base. And they just don't do good enough deals in terms of shirt sponsorship and all that kind of stuff. The one time they went all in, they, they almost went belly up, you know? When when Rosella Sensi took over, I remember reading an interview with her where she said that she when she went through the accounts, she just started crying because she thought the club was going to go out of business. Now, Lazio had done the same thing. Lazio had spelt, spent themselves into oblivion as well. Because when you're trying, and remember, um, Parma went out of business, Fiorentina went out of business, Napoli went out of business. If you're not AC Milan, Inter Milan, or Juventus, you, you don't really have much of a chance in the last 40 years because they're the only ones that have successfully grown their brands. They're the only ones that have had ownership who themselves could fund the massive spending and weren't mortgaging the future of the club, basically. Um, KR99, when do you think Ireland could realistically qualify for a major tournament again? Well, it looks like we'll be in Euro 2028 uh, as hosts, so that, that might be it. I, I think the 2026 World Cup is not unrealistic. I think when you start to look at a lot of the younger players that are there now, and what they could potentially become over the next two to three years, I don't think it's outrageous to think that by 2025, we'll be good enough to qualify in 2026. So if we take a look at the, the national team squad, um, goalkeeper, I think we're very strong. Basunu, Kelleher and Travers, all... 23 and under, all very good. Um, in defence, I think Dara O'Shea is very promising. I think Nathan Collins is going to be excellent. I really like Andrew Omabamadali. Uh, I really like Liam Scales, who's at Celtic. 
excuse me, Celtic. I like Festi Obasile, who's just joined Udinese. I think he's very, very talented. So there's the makings of something in defence. In midfield, Connor Coventry and Gavin Kilkenny. Love that we have two lads named after cities, or well, places. Um, both good players. Both good players. Um, Tyreek Wright is a good player. Ross Tierney is a good player. Will Smallbone is a very good player. If he can overcome the injuries, he can be uh, a big player for Ireland. Connor Nose, the kid at Borussia Mönchengladbach, meant to be super talented. Armstrong Okoflex at West Ham, meant to be super talented. Luke Connell, very talented. John Patrick Finn Benoa, is that his name? At at Hatafe, really talented. Louis Watson, Jason Knight. Like, there's a lot of really talented young midfielders. I I like Malumbi as well uh, from Brighton. So I think there's the makings of something there. And then up front, you've got, you know, your Troy Parrots, Callum Robinson will be in his early 30s by then, but he's a good player. Um, Adam Ida, I do like. I think he's I think he's got the makings of something. Aaron Connolly, bustly, hard worker. He's he's talented. Um I, I Evan Ferguson, the kid at, at Brighton, one definitely keep an eye on. There's a lot of talent. And I do think the the great thing with Kenny, with 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 Kenny as manager, is he wants this team to be to be built in a certain way with a certain style of play and a certain approach to games. And as he moves out the older players, the ones that worked under Trapattoni, the ones that worked under Martin O'Neill and, and Roy Keane, and gets his own team in place, and, and he's responsible for the progression of them all, I do think we'll start to see a higher level of football from these players than maybe some some of what we've seen before. Like, in terms of talent, there's there's not one that you'd look at, like, say, when we had Roy Keane coming through, and you'd say, that's the one. There's not a Duff or a a Robbie Keane that'd get you really excited. There's not a Liam Brady or a John Giles or a Paul McGrath. But there might be a collection of Ray Houghton, Andy Townsend, that kind of level of player. And if one or two of the group that's there now does have a leap in them where they can explode beyond expectation and become the level of player that maybe looking at it now we don't think they're capable of being. Like I think Jason Knight, if put in the Premier League, could really elevate his game, not to a Roy Keane level, but like I don't see why he, he couldn't do what Conor Gallagher does. I think he's a similar level of talent to Conor Gallagher. And there's a team of players there that could be that kind of level, which would be enough to get you to a major tournament. 
So I do think 2026 is the one to look at. I, I hold no hope for 2024 because I think the players are too young. The players we, we should be playing are too young. I want to see him move on a lot of these older, <clears throat> underperforming players. You know, I don't want to see Matt Doherty play for Ireland anymore. Uh, I don't want to see John Egan too often. Um, don't want to see the cousin or Connor Hurin or Will Keane. You know, these are lads I don't want to see play. I want to see these younger lads play. I think they're the future. They're the ones we should be relying on. James Collins shouldn't get another call-up. Shane Long shouldn't get another call-up. Uh, Daryl Horgan shouldn't get another call-up. I also think we need to set a bit of a standard here and not be calling up players who are struggling in League 1 and League 2. Like, there's enough players playing a Premier League championship and abroad to, to start really focusing in on them, especially the younger players, and develop them from an early age. 2026 is where I think we could we could qualify. And obviously then 2028 will be great because it'll be here and in the UK. Um, Dave O'Donovan, question for the pod. Not sure if this one's asked already. I saw it on Twitter a few days ago. You're offered the choice of two of the following scenarios, but can only pick one of them. Which do you choose? Liverpool win the Premier League title this season, but go on to lose the Champions League final to Man City. Liverpool finish runners-up in the Premier League this season, but go on to beat Man City in the Champions League final. Um, When City won the league and Liverpool won the Champions League, all anyone talked about was Liverpool winning the Champions League. I don't know how it would be in reverse. I, I do think if we won the league and City won the Champions League, the Liverpool thing would probably get more attention just because Liverpool does get more attention, largely because they're a much bigger club with a far bigger fan base. I think I would rather win the Champions League. My hope for City was that they'd win the Champions League last season because the bottom line is eventually they're going to win it. They're too well run. They're too well coached. They've got too many good players. They spend too much money to not do it eventually. So my hope was that they'd do it last season when it wasn't against us and just get it out the way. I would rather win the Champions League, though, than win the league. Like, we've won the league title. And we've got the second most league titles. It'd be nice to tie United. It would. But I'd rather that seventh Champions League. I really would. I'd rather that seventh Champions League. I think it would mean more to the club. I think, you know, given our history and pedigree in Europe, I do think it would mean a bit more. And obviously Milan have seven. It'd be nice to tie them, get one past Bayern, who continue to catch up on us. Yeah, it'd be nice to it'd be nice to tie Milan with seven. You know, then you're only looking up at Real Madrid. And and Real might never get caught. They've got 13. 
but it'd be nice to get to seven. You get to seven and all of a sudden you start to look and you're only one shy of tying all other English clubs combined. You know, there's eight between United's three, Chelsea's two, Forest two, and Villa's one. You get seven, and you've nearly got as many as them combined. Yeah, I, I would take, as much as I'd love to win the league, I would rather win the Champions League. I think it means more to, to players as well, the Champions League does than league titles. I think it's only, like obviously, in Serie A, winning the Scudetto is massive. Like massive. It's, it's the big achievement. In the Premier League, winning the Premier League is the big achievement. But when you look at the rest of Europe, I do sort of feel, and even Italy now to an extent, I do sort of feel like winning the Champions League is the be-all and end-all. Like, you look at Pep at Bayern, won three straight league titles, but didn't win a European Cup. And that's the overriding narrative about his time there. He's on course to win his fourth league title with City this year, but the overriding storyline is he hasn't won a European Cup. Juventus won nine titles in a row. But you know what they didn't do? They didn't win a European Cup. So nobody shows them the respect they deserve. PSG, they win the league, win league one every year. Well, bar two, obviously. Uh, but they haven't won a European Cup. You look at Real Madrid, okay? They, I, I, would, I, I would always say Real Madrid and Barcelona are the two top teams in the world. But Real, I believe, are the, the number one. I think historically it's Real, then Barca just a little nod, notch below and then I would say it's your Bayern Munichs, your AC Milan's, your Man United and your Liverpool. I think those are the next tier. But I, I've always thought Real are just are the club. And if we look at them over the past decade or so, they've won two league titles. They've won three league titles since the start of the the 2010s, but only two in the last decade. They won four European Cups. Do you think for one second they cared that they only won those league titles, that Barca were dominant? Because think about that. Barca won three European Cups. Actually, Barca, to be fair, won four European Cups between the mid-noughties and the mid-tens. But Real won four European Cups in a span of five years. That's a greater achievement. If you look at Real, they've won since 1998, which amazingly is 24 years ago, but that doesn't seem like all that long ago. That's the Zidane World Cup, the Ronaldo World Cup, the rebirth of French football. Since then, that summer, Real won the European Cup. They've won six since. They've won six European Cups since then. 
in 23 years, since 2000, they've won six European Cups. 2000, 2002, 14, 16, 17, and 18. Only one of the club has won seven ever in Milan. And they've won six in the last 23 years, seven in the last 24. Seven since 1998. They've won as many in that period of time as any other club has ever won. It's absolutely staggering. Their focus has always been on the European Cup. You know, they won it back in the 50s a bunch. They won it again in the 60s. And then they just start to dominate. And while all the rest of us, you know, flap about looking at league titles, they just look at the European Cup and say, that's what we want. Because you can win your domestic title. But if we win the European Cup, we're the best team in Europe. Now, in some circumstances, like, for example, when Liverpool won the European Cup in 05, there was no real argument for us to make that we were a better team than Chelsea, who won the league title. But when we won it in 2019, we could make a real argument that we were a better team than Man City. They finished a point ahead of us in the league, but we won the European Cup. So there was a real argument that we were the better team, that we were the best team in Europe. And Real, when Barca were winning league titles and Real were focused on winning European Cups, who do you think was happier at the end of the year? Real Madrid, every time. Because while Barca would win the league, then they'd get upstaged because Real would bring home a European Cup. City won the league last year, but Chelsea upstaged them by winning a league title. Now, again, nobody would make an argument that Chelsea last year were better than City last year, but they upstaged them. European Cup is, it is the pinnacle. So I would rather win the European Cup. Um. I think that is it for questions for today. Apologies if I've missed anything. Uh, we'll wrap up quickly with the gossip. Uh, Fraser Forster has been called up to the England squad after Aaron Ramsdale was ruled out through injury and Sam Johnston was ruled out through illness. So Nick Pope, Fraser Forster and Jordan Pickford are the three goalkeepers. Three Southampton players in the England squad, which is a great achievement for them. Uh, Chelsea are allowed to sell tickets again after the uh, the licensing rules were changed to give them a bit of extra breathing room because it had become a little bit questionable whether or not they were going to get to finish out the season uh, considering the restraints that were put on them. And finally, we have the gossip. Harry Kane refused to commit himself to Tottenham after been asked about his future while on England duty. I wish people would stop asking him while he's on England duty and just let him go about his England duty and not have to be talking about anything else. Declan Rice would prefer to move to Chelsea rather than Manchester United. Makes sense. He's a London lad. He was at the Chelsea Academy. A lot of his friends are there, so that does make sense. Um, Roma are set to place a £100 million price tag on Tammy Abraham. I knew that had happened. I knew they'd put a silly price tag on him because he's English. Um, he's had a good season, though, so fair play. Juventus, Real Madrid and PSG are favourites to sign Paul Pogba. Um, I, I would rule Real out unless they get desperate. Uh, but Juventus and PSG wouldn't surprise me at all. 
Newcastle and Aston Villa all said to be monitoring the situation. You can rule Villa out as well. Newcastle will not make a move for Neymar and are set to have a summer transfer budget of less than the 90 million they spent in January. Okay. Uh, the Magpies plan to sell Miguel Almarin and will allow him to leave for 15 million. Makes sense. Makes sense. He's, he's not part of the plans, so you might as well move him on and get something in from Arsenal are looking at Darwin Nunes and have held background talks with his agent. Uh, so say the Express. So I'd imagine that's made up. West Ham are monitoring Sven Botman, but face competition from Newcastle and AC Milan. I think he ends up at Milan, but I know Newcastle are still keen. Tottenham, PSG and Real Madrid were interested in Frank Kessie, but he will join Barcelona when his contract runs out in the summer. I think that's such a strange move for all parties, but I hope he gets his money. Uh, Spain defender Cesar Aspilicueta has knocked back questions about his future amid talk. He will leave. So hang on. Why is that him knocking back questions and yet Harry Kane doing the same thing as him refusing to commit his future? Do we see the double standard that's here? William Saliba, who is on loan at Marseille, says his future depends on talks with the Gunners. He has a contract until 2024 with the London club. Meh. I, I, I just think it might be over for him there because I don't think Arteta likes him for whatever reason. Barcelona do not intend to increase their offer to Ronald Arroyo with the 23-year-old's contract with them coming to an end in 2023. So he will likely leave this summer in that case. Chelsea owner Roman Abramovich has reportedly opened talks to try and buy Turkish Super League club Gustepe as the process of selling the Blues continues. Oh, it would be some crack if he brought another, bought another club. Imagine he bought them and just started to like rinse money through them. That would be fairly hilarious. So they're currently 18th in Turkey. I don't know how many teams go down. I'm guessing three because it's a 20-team league. Uh, they've lost five in a row. Um, let's see. Do we recognize any of their players? Uh, Marco Mahovic? Not really. Franco DeSanto? I thought he was retired years ago. Franco DeSanto. Former Chelsea legend, by the way, once signed using Roman Abramovich's money, um, has returned to Europe after being at Atletico Monero and San Lorenzo. How is he still only 32? He's been around forever. Still living off that season he had at Werder Bremen. Spent three years at Wigan, year at Blackburn on loan. Crazy. Um, yeah, he's the player I recognize there. Uh, it would be funny, though, if he did buy them. Uh, you would imagine that there would be a massive um, influx of tourists to their games, all of them with you know strong London accents. Leeds ha- are ready to offer at Anderlex Sergio Gomez a deal with the 21-year-old having caught the eye of Victor Orta. Someone needs to have a chat with Victor Orta and ask him what he's doing with his life. 
because he he's really not doing the best work possible for Leeds United. Now, nothing to do with Sergio Gomez, who is a, a fine left back, but the squad he has built at Leeds is unacceptable. And Liverpool are set to sign 15-year-old Derry winger Trent Cone Doherty. Uh, they get him in under the pretense that while he is an Irish underage international with an Irish passport, he also has a UK passport, having been born in the free city of Derry. And we'll leave it there. I'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.